0: I thankfully had emails that I include in my memoir in Widowish that Joel wrote to his doctors, really begging for help. And that was just when he had MS. That was not when he was in a coma. It's like he was desperate for help, desperate to feel better. And to go back to what we were saying earlier in our conversation about quality of life, there was no life left for Joel to live.
1: Hello, my friends, welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. So here's the thing, a 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives, and I'm no exception with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. And yet we're so grief illiterate, and that is causing all of us, well, so much harm. So through my work at Reimagining Grief, and through this podcast, I'm on a mission to change the narratives of grief. One conversation at a time. Widowhood. What a weird word. What a weird club to be a part of. Widowhood is obviously a topic very close to my heart, and it's also an experience no one is prepared to go through, as my guest, Melissa Gould, shares in her best selling book, Widowish, and in our conversation today. Melissa is an award winning screenwriter who has written on such acclaimed TV series as Bill Nye the Science Guy, Party of Five. Beverly Hills 90210, and Lizzie McGuire. She's also written several TV movies for networks such as NBC and Disney Channel. But in our conversation today, she explores really the shared human experience that we all face when we love and when we lose. I can't wait for you to meet her. Today's episode is brought to you by Eternova. If you've been following my work here on the show or at Reimagining Grief, you know that I'm often railing against the narratives of moving on, and instead, I'm inviting people to find a way to carry their person's memory forward. While there are a lot of simple, everyday ways we can do that, from sharing stories with others to showing up in the world with a quality of theirs that we admire, I've discovered a company that can help you do it, well, remarkably. Eternava has created a way to transform memorial ashes into a diamond. And along the way, they help you carry their memory forward. Visit www.eternava.com to learn more about how you can remember remarkably. Don't forget to check them out on TikTok, too. Well, welcome to the show, Melissa Gould. I am so excited to have you on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch today. We talked, I think some months ago, and I devoured your book, Widowish. For those of you who haven't read her book yet, you definitely need to check it out. And don't worry, I'll drop a link in the show notes for today's episode. But Melissa, I just want to welcome you to the show
0: today. Thank you so much, Lisa. It's so nice to talk to you again. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, my listeners will know over the years, I've had a few fellow widows on the show, and we've explored kind of some of our similarities and some of our differences. I have to say, reading your book recently and reflecting on it today, there was a lot that resonated for me in my particular own widowhood and young widowhood experience. So we're going to dive deep into that and some of the experiences you had, some of the reflections you've had since, because I think it's been seven, eight, maybe going on eight years? Going on eight years, yeah. And even just some things that you've learned along the way for those listeners who are either newly widowed themselves or who have friends who are widowed or just anybody experiencing grief. But I'd love to start our conversation with this kind of central curiosity that I have that I ask each of my guests. And it's been interesting over the few seasons to hear all the different answers that people shared and reflecting that there is no right answer and there's no common experience. But I'm curious if you can to think about what's your earliest memory of grief and loss? And keeping in mind that could include things like pets Or I even had a poet on the show once who's very enamored by nature who talked about somebody who cruelly broke her favorite apple tree, a branch off her apple tree, and her feeling kind of like mourning for this thing that she savored. And just to make visible, as a reminder, this is really about the ways in which we learn about grief so much from our family, both explicitly and implicitly, which is all sort of filtered down from our broader what I like to call grief, illiterate grief, avoidant culture. So I'm just wondering if there's any memories that you have when you think about death or loss or grief, even in the non-death form in your childhood. Yeah.
0: First, I love that story about the apple tree. I totally get that. (laughs) In terms of what may be personal or like an early memory of grief, I mean, the thing that really comes to mind is my parents got divorced when I was about six years old, but I was so young. I don't remember feeling a particular way. I mean, I think throughout my life and my childhood, certainly, I was much more aware of feeling like my parents are divorced. But at six years old, it was this sort of nebulous thing in my memory. Nothing really stands out. Too particularly, it's interesting to start with this because, you know, as a grown woman with a young child, I became a widow, which is like the most pronounced um, experience with grief I've had. But leading up to that, I think my experiences were fairly traditional, for lack of a better word. I lost my grandparents. I was very close with my grandmother. That was in my 20s. I lost a beloved pet over the course of my life. But in terms of what really struck me to my core was losing my husband.
1: Yeah. And we're going to dive deep into your relationship with Joel and the loss that you faced there. You know, I'm curious to peel back a little further if you're willing to go there. Just when you think about even the loss of your grandparents, which, again, I think we think of that's an ordered death, if there's such a thing, yeah. right? That's a death that we anticipate. But when you reflect back to those early 20-something time, do you remember— the ways in which was this your mother's parents or your father's parents?
0: My dad's mother. Your dad's mother. And do I you were remember those? Really
1: do you remember what was their expression of grief? Do you remember feeling noticing particular things? Were people quiet or very vocal? Did you feel uncomfortable around people's emotions? Did they feel uncomfortable around yours? When you think about
0: no, I mean I have to give my family credit in that. We are all very open and over analytical and talk about everything all the time, incessantly, and we rehash things over and over for better or worse. So I think when my grandmother died, we sort of saw it coming. I wouldn't call it sudden. I don't know if shock is too strong a word, but we were expecting it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it sounds like your family modeled being open about whatever it was that was coming up for people in their experience of grief and loss.
0: You know what, Lisa, we're Jewish and we, <laughs> we're we an emotional, yes. Exactly, exactly. So I don't know if that's part of it, but yeah.
1: Yeah, well, and we're going to talk about that a little bit because I know Joel was Jewish and I remember in reading in the book you talking about different things that he might have wanted or different in terms right. of ceremonies and practices, but... Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think so many of our listeners, really the intention of me asking that question is to invite people to think. It's really to pause. We have so many beliefs that operate as narratives kind of under the radar without our awareness. And in particular, I believe we end up developing a set of grief beliefs. That's what I call them. But we often don't even know them. And the reason I think it's important for each of us to make visible, not as an opportunity to bash our parents for not doing a good job or, or anything like that, But the more we can make visible these underlying beliefs, the more we can make conscious and intentional decisions about whether or not those beliefs serve us in our current grief practice. So what I see throughout my work, and I experienced this too, and I'll be curious today if you had a lot of these too, is we often, grief is hard. It sucks. Let's not joke around. Let's not sugarcoat it. It fucking sucks. And I think sometimes it's made more difficult because we have these grief beliefs that sometimes get in our way, and I call them the shoulds of grief. We sort yeah. of should all over ourselves. And so the invitation for us to all explore grief beliefs, particularly, by the way, before you enter a major episode of grief, Better to Do Before, which is the like slight same thing about thinking about how you want to die and what you want, all those kind of conversations to do before is then you can start to make some intentional choices about whether those beliefs serve you or not. And there's not, again, a right or wrong. It's just about a kind of introspection because you need all the tools at your disposal to navigate right. this crazy, untraveled terrain. And so if you can kind of get the right grief beliefs in your toolbox to help you, the better off you are. So thanks for exploring that question with me. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I want, for those listeners who haven't read Widowish yet, I want to invite you to tell me a little bit about, I think we sort of have, we oftentimes skip over to the grief story. And I want you to help us paint the picture of your life story and your love story even with Joel who I know you met in your early
0: 20s, I think? I was actually a teenager when we met. We we worked together at a record company here in Los Angeles. It was my summer job and it was his job job. And we met and became fast friends. I was young. We were both young. I was in a relationship at the time. He was in a relationship, but we liked each other. And the thing about Joel was I really liked him. And he sort of set the standard for me in terms of the kind of guy I wanted to marry. I never thought it would be him, but he was the kind of guy in my mind, I was like, I'm going to find somebody just like him. And I never knew it was going to be him, but it was so thrilling that it was. (laughs) Um, But our history was really just a matter of timing. It was always off for a variety of reasons. But by the time we did finally get together, and I write about all of that in Widowish, the timing was finally right. And I always thought that we liked each other and we loved each other. And that made the biggest difference. I think the fact that we were friends for such a long time before we got together really just gave our relationship this incredible platform to build from.
1: Yeah, I could definitely feel in your writing the sort of friendship that you had with Joel as much as I felt the romance and I definitely could relate Eric and I, my late husband and I worked together in different departments and we're also in separate relationships and then, but so became friends long before we sort of looked at each other one day and went, wait,
0: what? I think there's something else going on here. Um, (laughs) Which happens, I think, to people. It's like suddenly a light bulb goes off and you're like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, and so the reason I want
1: to tease that out is one, I think we get in such a hurry, as I said, to tell the grief story, but also to be in memorial of people. And I want us to all get practice, both for ourselves, and when we show up for our friends in grief is to help elicit the lived story of people. So not just carrying their memories forward in these kind of write-up little scripts, like he was a, but to really Bring an enriched version, an enriched memory of people. So I appreciate you helping us to see the kind of fried. No, I love that
0: idea. And I feel like, you know, Widowish really is a love story. And I feel like it really speaks to the life that Joel lived. And that's the thing. And I'm sure you've explored this with so many of your guests on this podcast. But, you know, we lose our beloveds and they're people who have had very full lives. Outside of our relationship to them, these are people who held jobs had work friends, had places they liked to go for a cappuccino or a sandwich, or, you know, they lived a life that we weren't necessarily privy to 24-7. Even though we were completely intimate and committed and shared our life together, they also had lives outside of our relationships. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And to
1: invite people to be more comfortable in helping us contain or actually gain these sort of enriched memory of their lived lives. On top of which, I don't know for you, I won't speak for you. I have such a bad memory. I definitely went downhill when grief brain hit, which we can talk about too. But even just in general, like Eric was our memory keeper. That's the stupid irony of this whole thing. So the more people are comfortable over the years of coming forward and saying, I remember this time, or, you know, there was this quality about him, or he did this thing, or did you ever see... Which not very many people do because I think speaking of grief beliefs, they have this idea that if they bring Eric up to me
0: so that like somehow I'm gonna be upset into and fall tears. apart. Right.
1: And I'm like, I was already thinking about him so and B, to your point, these are actually gifts that you can give people because they help us fill this Fuller, richer story of the person that we loved, maybe that we didn't even know about them at that time, or maybe we've lost track of because for me anyways, one of the cruel ironies of grief over time is that the sort of the memories can become more sort of quotes, bite-sized Kind of stories that we tell as opposed to the sort of lived, enriched, embodied memories. So, the more listeners, I'm just saying this to you, the more you can show up for your sister, your colleague, your friend, somebody, and you'll have to decide the right timing. Sometimes it's not the right timing, but write those things down, save those memories, share those stories.
0: Oh, Lisa, you know what I did for my daughter, Sophie? So, she was 13 when Joel died. And when she graduated high school and was going into college, I wrote to all of Joel's friends and our friends and family and asked them to share a memory of Joel with me and Sophie. And I put all of them into a book and I gave it to her as a graduation gift. And I think it was one of the best things I could have done because to the point that you bring up, our memories are limited after a while. And especially, it sounds like Eric and Joel did a lot of the memory keeping, that it was so nice to read other people's experiences of my husband and of Sophie's father. It was so illuminating, you know, to the life he lived and things that I forgot about or didn't know about, certainly that our daughter didn't know about or forgot about herself, it was i just encourage people to do that to ask their friends for memories and to keep a record of it because it just creates a more fuller picture of the people we've lost
1: and it allows us those even more sort of sweet, special, beautiful, sometimes practical ways that we can carry them with us. Because I do believe we sort of, someone that we've loved deeply or had a deep relationship with and lost, they become a part of us and having those enriched memories help us do that a little bit easier to be able to carry their qualities and their experiences with us. So true. come back. Melissa shares how and when she bumped into Joel again, how the friendship turned to romance, leading to marriage, a daughter, and then a devastating diagnosis. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefhofer. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, author and widow, Melissa Gould. So you and Joel kind of met again at a time when it was right for you guys to align. And you were, I know, a writer, a screenwriter. He's in in the music, I think, business or was in a production business. And you had this love story. And I know you talked about your pregnancy. I don't want to skip too far. But one of the things that really struck me in your book that I, I wondered if you'd be willing to explore with me today is long before Joel's death, From a totally different cause, which we'll talk about in a little bit. He was diagnosed with a very serious illness and an otherwise healthy, active young man. Again, like I told you, I was nodding and crying through the whole book because there was so much (laughs) resonance with Eric's story as well. But for Joel, maybe if you feel comfortable speaking for him and for you, Mm -hmm. when you got the news that Joel had MS, how many years before his death was that ish? Around four. Four years. So when you got this news, that the diagnosis was this was it he had ms and both of you began navigating I wonder if you might share back at that time or in the intervening years, how you came to understand that in light of this notion of sort of anticipatory grief, knowing, and even this right. ambiguous loss. So the anticipatory grief was like, would MS be is shortening his life? What would happen? And sort of grieving before he's gone. But I also think about the sort of cruelness of this ambiguous loss, both for himself and for you, that he was right in front of you and yet not the person right. that he once was.
0: Can you talk so- a little bit about that? Yeah. So MS, multiple sclerosis is what Joel and I refer to as a quality of life disease. Most people don't die from MS. Most people don't die from autoimmune diseases, but they drastically affect the quality of your life. And I can't speak to other diseases. We'll stick to MS, but. MS really presents differently in every single person diagnosed with it. Some people find the right course of treatment. They live their lives. You have no idea that they are living with this daily that wasn't the case with Joel. He was a really active guy. He was really athletic. He, when I met him, he played in both a softball league and a basketball league. He played racquetball several times a week. He went to the gym every day. His physical health meant a lot to him, much more to him than to me. (laughs) But he was very in tune with his body and really just loved exercising. He loved the camaraderie of being on these different teams and he loved the physicality of it.
1: Um, It was a big part of his identity. It sounds like, and also the way he processed probably stress and life and work and family. Yeah.
0: Oh, absolutely. That's the irony about getting a diagnosis with MS is it affects your mobility. And Joel was nothing if not a guy who liked to move. So It was a devastating diagnosis, and I go into it in the book a lot, but he basically was having a disconnect between his body and his brain, and he realized it and recognized it when he was playing basketball, because he would see the ball going down the court, and he would tell his body, like, go after it, and he couldn't move. So after some exploratory doctor visits and things like that, he was eventually diagnosed with MS. And we did grieve that, Lisa. There was a lot to grieve. Again, we never thought he would die from it, but his quality of life and our quality of life was compromised after a period of time. And the way, again, I'm not a doctor. I'm only an expert on our situation. But Joel was on a course of medication that really worked for a number of years. He had to make adjustments. You know, he couldn't really play basketball and racquetball and softball the way he used to, but he discovered yoga, which was life-changing for him. He started riding his bike more. He was living with the disease in a way that was manageable. And but, in some ways able to retain some sense of Joel. Exactly, exactly. And I do write in the book, however, that after a few years, medication becomes less effective. Again, that's typical and par for the course with a lot of these autoimmune diseases. But it got to the point where the MS was robbing Joel of the things that made him Joel. And that was towards the end. We didn't know it was the end. We didn't know the end was coming. But it was during this course of treatment and trying to find a new medication that would make him more himself and make him able to live his life to the degree that he had been still compromised, but comfortable. And it was during this, period of time where he was trying to find a new medication that he became susceptible to what eventually killed him, which was a mosquito bite that was carrying West Nile virus.
1: I mean, the absurdity and the surrealness of it all. Both I presi- those things. Both, yeah, all of it together. <laughs> Crazy. And we're going to talk a little bit about that and talk about some of the decisions that you guys made at the end. And you had to make at the end again, like I said, related to so much of this. But I wonder... I'm curious if you can reflect a little bit on whether you felt you had space yourself to grieve the loss of the relationship as it was sort of the identity of the couple or even of him did you feel like you had to sort of put that on the back shelf for his own grief and this isn't a judgment question again the purpose and mission of the show is to always just make visible all these things we're all feeling and nobody's talking about and not all feeling everybody has different situations but did you feel sad or angry and then guilty sometimes What do you recall when you you know, think about in those intervening years, like where was the space for you to grieve? This is such
0: a great question. Yeah, I felt all of those things, as did Joel he felt guilty that he was so compromised that it affected our lives. He felt bad that I didn't sign up for this and neither one of us did. But again, I think it goes back to us and our friendship that we really liked each other. And when you make that commitment and when you get married and say, you know, in sickness and in health, we certainly weren't expecting that to hit us in our forties. You know, that was a shock. And I would say that we both grieved in ways that I wouldn't necessarily label grief at the time. In hindsight, I recognize it as grief, but while we were living through it and it was also unexpected and so surreal, I think we were just like, shit, this is really hard. Yeah. And how are we going to manage? Taking it one punch at a time. And the punches were coming for both of us. Yeah. It was difficult for a while I like to name
1: that and I'd like to call that out because I think for anybody who's going through that right now, whether you're a caretaker or you're somebody who's having a chronic illness or a catastrophic injury or something that's sort of life shifting, is to sort of have grace and patience and space both for yourself and for somebody else, maybe the caretaker or the friend who might be exhibiting behaviors or emotions that seem unlike them, quote unquote. And instead of sort of having judgment about it or having self-blame about it to sort of normalize that maybe these are actually just reflections of coming to grips and to grieving in some ways, the losses, even as those losses are changing over time, and which is what was happening in your case. I definitely didn't... I definitely would not have labeled my last year with Eric as ambiguous loss. Of course, now I do because he was just being undiagnosed and our lives were being turned upside down and becoming quite frightening, to be honest. And I was sort of grieving, but I wouldn't have named it grief at the time. But I was watching my husband disappear right in front of me, even though his body was was still right in front of me. So i just like to give us all a little bit more permission and to invite all of us to sort of have both grace for ourselves, but also grace for the people in our lives who you might feel tempted to say, at least so-and-so is still alive. You know, don't be sad or don't be angry. And to instead think, I wonder if they're grieving and how can I offer them some space or grace. I actually just got invited to go speak to some internal medicine residents about this very thing. So I'm hoping to remind some of the physicians and the nurses in the community that sometimes the behaviors you're seeing about family members and patients are actually just very normal signs of grief. Yeah. So I know you shared in the book and, and you can share in whatever detail you do or don't want to share on the show. I always tell people I'm not trying to live in a Kardashian world where we expose everything. <laughs> and I want us to get all more comfortable sharing what is important for us to share so we can feel seen. But as you share just now... His MS was progressing, they were looking for new medication, trying things, and the medications that he was on was making him susceptible to more illness. And on a trip to Mexico, it turns out, in retrospect, right, in hindsight, he got bit by a mosquito that had West Nile. And from it the time in Mexico,
0: actually. It was it was our
1: backyard. Oh, it was your backyard. And you had
0: gone on a trip to Mexico, was that we right? had gone on a trip to Mexico. Okay. So basically, the last year of Joel's life was a seminal year because he was turning fifty, our daughter was having Having her bat mitzvah. And it was almost like because of those two events, which are both big, we really saw everybody in our life who was important to us. We saw all of our loved ones, all of our family, friends that would be invited to like a 50th birthday or our daughter's bat mitzvah. But it was during that year that he was in between the medications and he was on steroid infusions. And somebody was coming to our house, a nurse, to administer the infusions for a week. And it was in that week or during that week that we were basically living our lives the way we have been with COVID in a way. We were on lockdown because Joel was compromised. He didn't leave the house. Our daughter went to and from school, but that was it. It was like washing her hands the minute she came home. If I would go out, I'd wash my hands. We weren't wearing masks because we didn't do that in those days, Because he was on these steroids, which lower your already compromised immune system, he was told to stay home and lay low. And part of that was him puttering around our backyard, which was his happy place. We didn't think that being in the backyard would prove lethal. And what happened is a neighbor had sold their house. The developer had completely let it deteriorate, including the pool in the backyard, which was half drained became like a swamp. And we believe that is where this infected mosquito came from during that week that Joel was on lockdown. Of course, it took a month or so for symptoms to present. I think that was after our trip to Mexico. But I did write about our trip to Mexico because that spoke to how compromised Joel really was in in those last months of his life. And things were just getting progressively worse and progressively worse
1: the surrealness of it all and the absurdity of it all. And there's so many so moments, absurd. so many of our so listeners <laughs> can, can look back and think that one thing and that day and it turned left and not right. And then this whole chain of events happened. So I know you shared in the book, I don't want to rehash it too much now, except to the degree that I think it's important because I'm always trying to use this platform to invite people to sort of have the hard conversations, to look inward, but also to feel confident in discussing outwards. He ended up deteriorating from the West Nile, he ended up basically in a coma state in the hospital. And at some point, the doctors came to say to you, there's really nothing we can do again. I've been there. And I wonder for you, you talk a little bit about it in the book, but I wonder for you, given you share Joel's Jewish, you were Jewish, although I think I recall in the book, you were saying Joel was sort of more.
0: I was always sort of like Jewish, like so many people I know, like we were culturally Jewish I'm sort of half that myself.
1: But you must have had some conversations about what kind of quality of life he wanted and what measures he might have wanted because of maybe the diagnosis, or maybe you had because of the diagnosis of MS. But certainly, again, as you said, that year, you weren't expecting to have to make decisions about life support and those kinds of decisions. How did that come to you? How did that decision come to you with ease or not? How did his faith or his beliefs or his wishes play into that? Can you tell us a little bit well, about Well, it's
0: interesting because I think because of the MS, Joel and I had a lot of crazy conversations about end of life and things that I don't think couples typically talk about when you're young, but because he was diagnosed, he was, we were in our forties, let's say like our early forties. So we had conversations about death, end of life, and they seemed completely crazy at the time. But I had all of those to pull from when this event occurred and he was in the hospital and I really thought I'd be taking him home. I mean, we weren't like hospital people, like even going to the emergency room was a huge deal. And even though he had MS, we just didn't know from hospitals or I didn't even know which hospital to take him to when we made the decision to go together to the ER. But he fell into a coma within 48 hours. And I kept thinking he'd be coming home within 48 hours. I had no idea the the events that would follow. But yeah, every day the doctors came in with worse news. You know, one day it was, he was paralyzed from the waist down. The next day he was paralyzed from the neck down. I was told that his brain function had slowed down significantly. And I write about in Widowish, a conversation I had with one of the doctors who really pulled me aside and told me how dire things were. And in my mind, I kept thinking, because his diagnosis was yet to be named, they didn't know it was West Nile virus until the very, very end. So I kept thinking, well, once they know what this is, they'll fix him. They'll make him better. Yeah. So, okay, he's paralyzed. All right. When they know what this is, they'll give him a shot and he'll be better. Or, okay, his brain functions slow down. So, But once they know what this is, they'll give him a treatment and he'll be fine. I really thought that. Like, I really was not clear on how bad, I mean, I knew it's a weird thing when I think about it. I think
1: so many of us do that. I mean, that's the protective mechanism, basically, of shock. I mean, that's our body and brain's cushion in some ways. You know, I think, how can you imagine the unimaginable?
0: And it was so unimaginable. And even just like seeing him in the ICU with like tubes everywhere and machines, you know, it was just such a surreal thing. And it was my every day for three weeks, which doesn't seem like a long amount of time. But when you're living that, it's so excruciating. And again, I thought as bad as things were that he would be coming home. So eventually when they came to tell me that it was West Nile virus, and I still wasn't, I was like, okay, so now what? Now we know what it is. Now you can making him better. And the doctors were like no, there's nothing we can do. And so I did have to make a tough decision. And I thankfully had emails that I include in my memoir in Widowish that Joel wrote to his doctors, basically, really begging for help. And that was just when he had MS. That was not when he was in a coma. It's like he was desperate for help, desperate to feel better. And to go back to what we were saying earlier in our conversation about quality of life, There was no life left for Joel to live. So the decision, while excruciating, was actually fairly clear.
1: Yeah. I had the exact same scenario. And I've said this to people over and over. And, you know, I had Michael Hebb on my show who created Death Over Dinner, helping people have these kind of conversations. And I've had guests over the years. I hadn't really had that conversation until, you know, Eric died. 16 days, I think, or 18 days after his diagnosis, which was a massive brain tumor that had shifted his brain stem and they didn't know how he was talking or walking or doing anything. And so right before his surgery, we sat down to have that conversation for the first time, not the ideal time, better to have it pre-anything, but still even having had that conversation when I had that same talk from the doctors that he's in a coma, he's never waking up, he's had a series of catastrophic strokes that have basically rendered him I remember thinking as surreal and weird and excruciating and out-of-body, frankly, experience the whole conversation was, the whole laying with him for eight hours until he passed in my arms, I have to say, I don't ever look back and wonder, did I make the right decision? Because oh, same. he was so yeah. clear. And if you want to make sure that the person who loves you the most doesn't have to suffer any more than they need to. After you go, the best thing you can do is be really clear about what you want, because that First of all, our brains aren't functioning well at that point. We're barely holding on. But second of all, the sort of wondering I think would be make everything so much more excruciating.
0: Yeah. Right. No, I have no doubts about any part of it really.
1: Yeah.
0: Which is a gift. It is such I mean, a gift. It's such a gift. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna get off
1: my soapbox now, y'all. Don't worry about it and about talking about this stuff. But just <laughs> just think about it. So you had a young daughter, of course, at the time, and I remember you saying trying to will yourself the truth into existence, like it's going to be okay, we're going to be okay. And I know so many of our listeners can relate to that. But I wondered if we could talk a little bit about young widowhood and the experience of young widowhood. My listeners will know I had Tony Plattis on the show, who's quite young in her 20s, as a comedian and a voice actor, who talked about this sort of experience of being a young widow and our mutual friend, Leslie Streeter came on to talk about her experience of not understanding the rules of widowhood, especially when you're not 80. And I I think Leslie said something like she didn't want to wear all that black drapey shit, she said. But if you're not too weirded out about it, there was a passage in your book that you wrote that really spoke to me about that. Like, how can I be a widow? What does it mean to be a widow? And maybe more importantly, the sort of weirdness or realness that we walk back out into the world navigating with this new identity that no one can see but we can feel. Is it okay if I read this passage back to you? Oh, sure. When we come back, I share a passage from Melissa's book, Widowish, that resonated deeply for me about the contradictions we grievers often face, the undeniable inner truth of our deep grief, while at the same time, recognizing how invisible it feels to the world around us. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. So I realized something the other day that kind of blew my mind. 100% of the individuals I see as a grief guide all discovered me through this show. As I've shared time and time again, it's an honor to host this show and such an unexpected gift that my work as a grief guide begins before we even meet. In nearly every initial session, I hear from people that they feel like they already know me, and perhaps more importantly, that they already feel understood by and safe with me. That is so meaningful to me. If you feel that way too, and you're interested in exploring individual grief support with me, I'd be honored to be your guide. You can learn more by visiting www.reimagininggrief.com forward slash support. So I just thought it was just so beautifully put about this sort of invisibility between you and the us and the world when you sort of take on this moniker of widowish again, because we don't have the black drapey shit to cue everybody around us that, hey, we're in widowhood. So you said, I felt like I was failing at widowhood. I missed my husband, but no one knew that when they looked at me. They just saw a mom with blonde highlights going to yoga, picking up her daughter from school, buying groceries at Trader Joe's. And now I was at a party with a date when I should have been home, grieving all alone. I didn't look like a widow. I wasn't acting like a widow, but I felt like a widow. I guess I was just widowish. And again, I think probably every widow out there, maybe even widows in older generations can relate to this. You know, we talked before about Joel's sort of, could he retain his Joel-ness and kind of the identity of herself? And I think one of the weird, surreal transitions as we move from wife to widow and then continue on down the road is this shifting of our identities there and also the fact that we feel it so presently, but others don't see it. And then we also, well, I will speak for me. I worried about other people's perceptions as if I'm behaving widow
0: enough, but not to widow, you know? Well, I think that's the thing as a younger widow, and that really is how I came up with this idea of widow-ish, is that exactly what you just read? Like, I didn't look like a widow. And we all have that idea that widow was much older, gray hair, dressed in black, crying, handkerchief to the nose at all times, staying at home, curtains drawn, grieving. And when you're a younger widow, and certainly a younger widow with kids, life moves forward, whether you want it to or not. You know, like I had to get my kid to school. I had to make sure we had food in the house and gas in the car. And, you know, like life continued. And that was something I couldn't believe. Like, I couldn't believe that the world didn't stop when my husband died. That is so surreal.
1: I remember leaving the hospital and just people were walking and they were getting on the elevator and they were talking. And I was
0: like, how are you all? Oh, I write about that in my book. How are you all doing that? Why is this still happening? I have that scene in my book too. And, but you know that's why I think nobody knows that when they look at you, that you've just experienced. And that's true of all of our lives. I mean, you know. We don't know what other people are dealing with. That's yes.
1: But I do think there's just like, there's some particular expectations about sort of grief and getting over it, moving on and bucking up and all the cultural BS that we have about any hard thing. Just apply a top 10 list and then you'll be all better. I do think there's a particularly weird sort of double standard expectation around widowhood. It's like, I want you to display it in a way that is, you know, with decorum and somehow in memory of and showing the solemnity, but also like, don't get your icky feelings all over me. Don't be too sad and don't be too morose and don't be too whatever. Cause it's going to make me uncomfortable. And that's a hard line to navigate.
0: What I couldn't stand though, are the people who would like look at me and burst into tears. Or I didn't wanna be everybody else's projections of grief. So I could keep it together for the fifteen minute shopping trip to Trader Joe's, but while I was in there I didn't necessarily want to talk to people about losing my husband and And then end up <laughs> consoling them because they're Hi. crying. And they're like, How are you? Well,
1: that's the pity, not the empathy. That's where I say, like, please show empathy. Don't show sympathy. Don't pity. Nobody wants to be pitied. Not a single human being in the world because it's isolating. You know, that pity is actually doesn't draw you closer in to somebody. doesn't bring you a sense of belonging. Actually does the exact opposite, regardless of your intention. By the way, if you're a grief supporter out there and you're hearing Melissa say
0: this and be like, oh, shoot, I did that. I mean, we all have probably. (laughs) Listen, it's not easy. And when you're like, as I felt as like the town widow, people are going to say things, you know, no, listen, I'm not sitting here to make people feel bad about what they may or may not have said. But I'm just like, for me, I always appreciated just a simple acknowledgement. Like, I'm so sorry I heard what happened. I didn't need to stand there listening to stories about their 85-year-old aunt who just died. You mean the grief thief stories? The grief these yeah. stories? That's what I call those. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, or just like what you said a minute ago, like me being put in the position of having to comfort them. I didn't want that. To me, just like a simple acknowledgement was enough.
1: Agree. I absolutely agree. And as you said, again, just like we're not trying to bash our parents for not modeling grief right or wrong, I'm not trying to bash the grief supporters out there. I just want to remind all of us that we don't want you to totally stay away. You know, I think the intention is everything less the words. I'm always saying show up, shut up and listen. That's my grief support motto and keep showing up because I don't know about you, but people faded away after a very short amount of time. It's really about the intention. So it's really like, mm-hmm. you can't fix it. This shitty thing that happened to this person happened. So when you're showing up, can you just show up and say, I see you? And you don't have to literally say those words, but really we want to be seen because there's kind oh of, my an, God, yeah. there's an invisibility and, that happens when you're grieving.
0: Yeah. And the other thing too, Lisa, like, I didn't mind. I have like strong recollections of friends of ours who just showed up at my house and they just wanted to sit. We didn't have to talk. We didn't, you know, those we were didn't the sit best. together. Yeah. Was so meaningful.
1: Yeah, because you can't talk your way out of the hard feelings. You just want to not, you just want to be sort of accompanied. You know, that's what I call. Yeah. Some of my favorite memories are people coming and literally sitting down on the floor because I couldn't even make it to the couch. And they like sat on the floor with me while I cried and just sat next to me and just were awkward. I mean, they just were there and just put up
0: with the awkwardness. Yeah. And what we were talking about earlier in our conversation, I'm not the only person who lost Joel. There was a community of people who lost him. And to sit with those people in their grief and share our collective grief was really meaningful.
1: Yeah. No, I love that. I love that. You know, as we begin to close our conversation today, which I mean, I feel like we could talk for hours and hours, so maybe there'll be a part two down the road, or maybe I'll have a (laughs) gathering of all my past widow guests for a little collection conversation. I think I've interviewed widows in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Yeah, I think I've kind of gotten every age bracket, and I just passed into 50s, so I interview myself, (laughs) check off the 50s. But I wonder whether you might share as we close what your seven... Almost seven years out. I'm about to be mm-hmm. ten years out next month. For me, next month will be mark the occasion that I will have been a widow longer than I was a wife.
0: That's an interesting one. That's
1: there's a lot of things happening. And, yeah, that's a. Big by the time one. this airs, that will have already happened. But it's been some time. You have got back out in the dating world. And I just wonder whether you, in any kind of, you can call, I'm going to call it wisdom for you, but in any of your own sort of inner learning or wisdom, what have you learned over time? Again, recalling this conversation we had about the expectations of widows and like what we mm-hmm. should and shouldn't be doing, but also for yourself, what have you learned as you've returned to sort of dating and opening yourself up to love that you think maybe you wished you had known that first date that you went on or in the beginning when you kind of put yourself back out there in the world?
0: Well, spoiler alert. Not really, but you know, if you read my book, the person who I started dating in the book is still in my life. So I didn't really have this experience of like going out there and dating a bunch of different guys and like landing with, like I just fell in love with somebody I had already known and here we are and we're still together. But in terms of just like the overall experience of losing my husband unexpectedly and talking to other widows and finding community and widowhood and community in the grief space, I think that the most important thing is to just be kind to ourselves. It is so strange, it is so surreal. At any age, you said you've talked to widows in twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, that's younger than expected. <laughs> and I think there isn't a lot of a roadmap now. I mean, sadly there kind of is because of COVID, there are so many more of us who have lost a loved one young and unexpected. But I think just to be kind to yourself, there's no such thing as grieving incorrectly. I think a lot of people make that mistake where they think I'm doing this all wrong. There's no such thing. You've never been through this and you're doing the best you can. And it's important to just be kind to yourself.
1: Yeah, I think that self compassion, I talk about that a lot in my work. I mean, on the show and my work at Reimagining Grief. And to your point, we do live in such an expert culture that I think we're sort of sucked into believing that we're somehow supposed to know how to do this quote, I you know I'm air quotes if we were on video right now to do this. And so then we hold ourselves to the standard. This is back to where we started around these shoulds that I should be doing in a different way or this way or this. And then people like to pile on and tell you they would want this from you or this is how I did it. And there's so much of this expertise. And I think if we can show up with empathy for ourselves, with self-compassion, with and be mindful of all those stories that are kind of weighing us down and to sort of look at them. So I think I appreciate that's a great place for us to close our conversation today, which is to honor whatever it is, is your path. You know, it's important, this balance, to listen out to the wisdom of others. So if you have other widows in your life or listen to episodes like this or seek grief support with people like me or other folks who've been through it, to honor that balance of listening to the lessons that other people have learned and maybe picking up the tools that you might want to try while at the same time trusting that you have some kind of inner knowing.
0: Inner knowing is key. Yeah, and it's hard to tune into that for a lot of people. You know?
1: I think it's hard, like largely in our culture, it's hard to tune into it again, because I think we're so attuned to this, just follow this one guru and you're going to get all the answers. Right. But I think the other reason that it's hard to offer that self-compassion and to turn inward to that inner knowing, this is my experience, this is what I've observed too, is that part of what we're grieving is the sort of sense of ourselves and the truth that we know about ourselves. And so our foundation often feels shaky and we feel a little untethered and unrooted. And so it takes more intention and more practice to get back to reconnecting with that inner knowing because we've been, yeah, kind of shaken. The ground beneath us has been shaken and it's hard to tap into that wisdom that's already there. But I think we have it. And the invitation, I love that you said that. I think self-compassion can lead us there, can lead us to coming back to kind of our inner knowing.
0: Yeah, I mean, we don't, we don't know how to do this. Who prepares you for that? There's no preparing for that.
1: Absolutely. So if you're out there listening and whether you're, you know, fresh in your grief or it's been seven years like Melissa or almost 10 years like me, and you might still be having those negative self-talk, don't use that as an opportunity to then criticize yourself, but just to say to yourself, just to remind yourself to be kind and to connect with your inner knowing and to honor that and listen out for those shoulds, y'all. I always remind you, ditch the sheds. And if you need help, we're here to remind you. Just re-listen to this episode or share it with a friend who might need to hear it. Melissa, thank you so much for coming on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch today, for talking about Joel and for sharing the memories of his light and his energy and his warmth with us and the lessons that you've learned over these past seven years. And as I said before, folks can find a link to Widowish in today's show notes. Thanks, Melissa, so much for coming on the show.
0: Thank you so much. This was great.
1: I'm deeply grateful to Melissa for exploring openly and honestly what it is to feel widowish in our conversation today. Please know that the lessons of honoring your own inner knowing and offering yourself compassion apply regardless of the type of loss you've experienced you can find her best-selling book widowish in the show notes for today's episode before we close the show i just wanted to let you know that i am in the final stages of finishing my book grief is a sneaky bitch and i can't wait to share it with you if you want to keep up to date on all the news, the talks, the podcast, the writing, other ways we can connect with one another, make sure you're subscribed to the not so regular newsletter. You can sign up today at www.reimagininggrief.com forward slash newsletter. I want to thank Giles Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show today. I also want to thank that team at StudioPod for helping me produce it. Thanks again for listening to today's episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my special guest, Melissa Gould. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. And until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.